This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for its challenge to us, for its inspiration to us. I pray that you'd help us to hear from you this morning through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Today's scripture readings are all about trust. They concern blessings and woes, good news and bad news. And the prophet Jeremiah reminds us that it is the Lord who tests the mind and searches the heart. And so this morning, I hope we will engage our minds and our hearts. The first question then, why should we trust God? The best reason to trust anyone is because they are trustworthy. And trustworthiness comes not through words, but actions. Starting with our minds, if you want a reasoned proof as to why you can trust God, there is no one event more pivotal than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Indeed, as I was saying from this pulpit last week, the resurrection is fundamental and foundational to our faith. And if true, gives us every reason to trust. But if false, would be more than enough reason for us to give the whole thing up. In our gospel reading, we encountered Jesus saying, blessed are you when people hate you exclude you, revile you, and defame you. Now, if that's all that we've got to look forward to without the hope of the resurrection, then why bother? Better surely to eat, drink, and be merry. There are many philosophies that will give you a much easier, less demanding, and probably happier life. If you deny the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus, then everything else in our Christian faith comes tumbling down like a pack of cards. No resurrection means no historic event to give us hope. Without the resurrection, Christianity is merely some spirituality, and death is the end. This was the issue that St. Paul was addressing in our epistle this reading this morning. It seems that there was a certain credibility gap for some of the people in the church at Corinth. They had surely heard what had been proclaimed to them by the Apostle Paul. They knew about resurrection. They probably sang hymns and songs about it. They probably heard sermons about it. But there were still folks who were having a hard time believing that resurrection was really possible. And it's this question that St. Paul takes up. If the actual bodily resurrection of Christ never happened, then not only would we all look a bit foolish, but we should actually be pitied. This is not a sermon on did it happen, but rather this first part is going to be why it matters. And St. Paul gives us four reasons, 
First, verse 13, if there's no such thing as resurrection, then obviously Christ has not been raised. If dead men don't rise, Jesus is still dead. If, as some people today want to do, you just spiritualize the resurrection, then somewhere there must have been the remains of a dead and buried Jesus. Second, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. St. Paul, who's devoted so much of his life to preaching the gospel, is saying that if there's no such thing as resurrection, then his whole life and ministry has been a complete waste of time. His sufferings, his persecutions, his hardships, all pointless. And more than that, not only would his life's ministry have been founded on a fraud or a hoax, but so too would everybody else's Christian faith. The collapse of the ground of Paul's preaching necessarily would mean the collapse of the church's faith. Take away the resurrection of Jesus, and there is nothing left to really rest your faith upon. There is no bedrock. Faith and faithfulness are produced not by looking to ourselves, but by looking to Jesus, the one who was crucified and is risen and will come again. Your own personal beliefs in the resurrection may be powerful. They may be valuable. They may be helpful. But if those beliefs are not actually true, then ultimately they'll count for nothing. Third, verse 15, Paul writes, if we deny the resurrection, we're misrepresenting God. Resurrection was not St. Paul's idea. It was God himself who raised Jesus. Of course, if no such thing ever happened, then it's nothing short of blasphemy to link the almighty God with some dead guru, prophet, or good man. The ultimate reason for accepting that Jesus really is who he says he is, namely the Son of God, is the fact of the resurrection itself. Only God has power over death. The fourth reason, verse 17, Paul gives for why the resurrection is so crucial is that if Christ has not been raised, your faith, your faith is what? Futile, utterly bankrupt. And you are still in your sins. All his preaching of Christ dying for our sins, according to the scriptures, would be utterly meaningless if Jesus had in fact stayed dead, and our faith would be completely empty and would achieve nothing at all. There would be no basis upon which we could trust God. The scriptures declare unequivocally that the consequence of sin and rebellion, selfishness against God, is death. Death is the end result of our separation from God. And if Jesus stayed dead, then either he was not sinless after all, and his death marks his own separation from God, or alternatively, if he was without personal sin, his attempt to deal with the problem of sin for you and for me was a miserable failure, for the power of death was not broken after all. And either way, that is seriously bad news for us. And the bad news gets worse. For the logical extension of all of this, Paul tells us, 
is that those who have died in Christ have perished. So the dreadful consequence of there being no resurrection is that death remains not only the last enemy, but the one thing we should all be afraid of and have no hope beyond. The gospel reading that we often use at funeral services about Jesus going to prepare a place for us ought offer no comfort at all to the bereaved if the resurrection never happened. And so the final thing Paul says on this here, verse 19, is that if Christ were not raised from the dead, then we of all people are most to be pitied. How pitiful it would be if this were not true. You know, if I ever stop believing in the resurrection of Jesus, you won't have to come and talk to me. The bishop won't have to come and sack me. I will be out of here like a shot, making sure that I have as good a time as possible before I die to oblivion. But, I hope you've stayed with me, but verse 20 gets its own paragraph in the, in the text. And this is one of the most important buts in the New Testament. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first, amen indeed, hallelujah. The first fruits of those who have died. And so the resurrection of Jesus marks the possibilities for a whole new beginning for the human race. Jesus is but the first fruits of an immense harvest of all those who will experience resurrection. This is why for those who are in Christ, for those who are Christian believers, there is hope even at death. Now, of course, for us now, as we as a church family know only too well, death is still a time of great sadness. And of course, we grieve. We grieve deeply when we lose someone we love. And yet, we're not without hope. We can still trust God. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the cornerstone of our faith. This event in history, above all others, gives us security where there is fear and hope where there is despair. Yes, the world is in a mess. Yes, in the midst of life, we face death. Yes, there is disease and heartache and loneliness. But, says the Lord, trust in me. And by the way, this is not all about the future. It's about living each day with our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's about surrendering our hearts and our minds and our wills to him. In the light of all this, then, we can answer that first big question of the morning, why should we trust in God? By concluding with our minds that it makes sense to trust God because the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. But what about our hearts? For the second question I began with is, actually, I don't think I did begin with, but I'll tell you what it's going to be. It's how do we trust God? Yeah, why should we trust God? But now how? How do we do this? And that touches our lives in a very different way. You know, we can map out 
the intellectual case. And, you know, today I wasn't trying to make the case explaining everything about the resurrection. Of course not. But I was trying to make the case of why it matters. But how do we do this? You know, sometimes the only way that we learn to trust is, is not by talking about it, but it's by doing it. And that typically happens when we need to trust. And that happens when we're in trouble or when we're suffering. You know, when all is going well, trusting God can, frankly, seem like an academic exercise. It's one thing to ask the hypothetical question, would you trust God if, say, you lost your job or you had some terrible diagnosis of sickness or you lost a loved one? And quite another thing actually to trust God when you do lose your job or you do get sick or you do lose a loved one, or when life as you knew it, for whatever reason, comes crashing down, then it's no academic question. Then it's very real. And then our second question this morning screams at us, how? How can I trust God in the face of, and you fill in the blank, you know, it's a little bit like wanting to be patient. In an instant society, patience is waiting for a gas pump to fill your tank. By the way, American gas pumps are twice as slow as British ones, and I have no idea why. So it frustrates me every time I fill up my tank with gas. Or patience is waiting for two-day shipping on your Amazon order. Of course, that's not real patience. Real patience comes as you wait for God to answer your heartfelt prayer and you hear nothing. Real patience is praying for a loved one for months, for years, maybe even for decades. Real patience is about trust. Trust that you'll get what you're asking for? No. Trust that you'll have a happy ending? No, not even that. Trust that God will heal you, perhaps? Not necessarily. What then? What then? What on earth is this trust? It is trust that depends not on a particular outcome, but on a particular person, on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is raised from the dead and is alive today and is coming again. It's about knowing and living into the truth that God is God and we are not. It's about experiencing the truth of that which the prophet Jeremiah declared in our Old Testament lesson, blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water. Then, even in the midst of drought or heat, fruit continues to grow. Hope is not lost. Fear is overcome. Now, as Jeremiah reminds us, the heart, unfortunately, is devious above all else. 
And we can so easily be deceived. So when the heat or the drought comes, we may panic. We may be tempted to to despair. Sure, we trust God when all is well. When we've met our goals through our education or we've got a great job or we've got married or we've had kids and, and we may say, yes, I trust God. But do you? Will you? Even when life takes a turn for the worse. Jeremiah reminds us of what God says. I, the Lord, test the mind and search the heart. If you've never suffered, if you've never grieved, if you've never known loss or failure, then perhaps you've never really had to trust. So I wonder, how is your heart this morning? What is it that God sees when he looks into your heart? Is it fear? Is it jealousy? Is it greed? Is it anger? Is it selfishness? Is it loneliness? Is it brokenness? And if your heart is broken, there is good news for you today. Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. If your heart is poor and bankrupt, hear afresh what Jesus says in our gospel this morning. Blessed are you when you are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Are you hungry or empty, longing to be filled, yearning for meaning, for belonging, for intimacy? Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. You will be filled. The one who is trustworthy says these things, and they are true. Or perhaps you, you look into your heart and, and you And it looks just great. You feel fine. You are content. You are rich. And you are filled. You have no need at all. If that's you, then this morning, based on our scripture, I have to say, heed the warning that Jesus would give. Woe to you, for you've received your consolation. You will be hungry. Does everyone think well of you? Are you a big shot? Are you someone who's noticed and matters? Well, hear this. Woe to you when all speak well of you. For that's what happened to the false prophets. So this morning, as we ponder this question of trusting God, and particularly our second question of how we trust God, the call is perhaps simply this. Get real. Be real. And our church family, I hope and I pray, is a place where we can do this, where we can be real. For we are made of broken people who gather together as a worshiping community. Not because we've made it, not because we're better than others, not because we have it all figured out, but because God has drawn us together to be his body in this place, in this city, at this time, to care for one another, to know 
his healing of our hearts and to share that healing with the broken world in which we live. And so we gather week by week to hear God's word, to be fed by word and sacrament, to be equipped to trust God for the rest of today and for tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, and to share Christ's love with our neighbors. But is this just the power of positive thinking, where all is grim but will act like it's great, where all looks bleak but will pretend that it's blissful? No. No, it's not that. It is about being real and honest. And you know, perhaps this sounds cliched to you. Just get real. How do we even do that? What does it look like? Let me offer just a few suggestions. We get real with God when we do not presume to come to his table, trusting in our own righteousness, but in his abundant and great mercies. We get real with God when we know that we're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under his table, but we remember that he is merciful, he is gracious, he is kind, and he longs to fill us and feed us with his very self. We get real with God when we come forward for prayer during communion, perhaps, and we're willing to say, I am weak, or I am weary, or I am lonely, and I need help. You don't even have to say it out loud to those who will pray for you. You can just tell God, just come forward and tell someone, please pray for me. That's all you have to do. And we get real with one another when instead of, how are you? Oh, good, thanks. The kind of bland exchanges that can happen. Instead, we dare to share something of our real joys or our real hurts. And we dare to ask one another for prayer or for help. Now, we don't have to bear our souls to everyone or turn every encounter into some group therapy session. Of course not. But we can take a risk to trust, to be even just a little bit vulnerable. So what is the secret to being blessed in our poverty and brokenness? I think it comes down to something that is very simple to understand, but something that's quite hard to do. For it is all about trusting. And how can we do this? And why is this even vaguely reasonable to think we should do this, to trust against the odds? Let me tell you why I think it's worth doing. And here we must go back to where we started. We can trust God because Jesus is raised from the dead. Because death and dying and evil and corruption and sin and selfishness, decay and emptiness, betrayal and loneliness are not the last word. Had we continued reading in 1 Corinthians 15, we would have heard these words. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But, another of the great buts in this chapter, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Will that victory come for each of us today? It could, but may not. Does this victory mean that your loved one who is sick won't die? It could, and it may not. But I pray that as you wait for resurrection in all the places where you experience death and decay, that you may know and trust the living God. Ask God to help you with his grace in the coming days. So do not be afraid. Trust in the Lord and you will be blessed. Amen.